Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. This is a podcast where Bill and I find hope in the future that is books. This is the one place that on the internet that likes books. Not the New Yorker, not the New York Review of Books, definitely not Twitter. We're it. We're the last enclave. You found us. Welcome. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> To set the tone for this podcast, this is our um, year in reading for 2019. <laughs> <laughs> which we are getting to in the beginning months of 2020 for reasons that might make this podcast a little loopier since Bill and I have both been super busy and uh, so forth. But we are excited to do this. because We love talking about the books that we've read this year, if only because, at least in my life, no one else cares. No one cares what I've read. It's like, what are you reading right now? War and Peace. And you just see people glaze over. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, welcome to the, you know, less structured than even usual big readcast. Um, Bill, how was your year in reading 2019? I had a pretty good year in reading, I think. I think I covered a lot of different bases. I didn't do as much contemporary literary fiction as maybe I had hoped to, so I'm still a, a dirty Philistine in that regard, but I had a pretty good time. Um, there's a couple of writers I read quite a bit of, and then I, I tried to keep things pretty broad. Um, I'm definitely going to have to talk to you about Shirley Jackson at some point, so just let me know when you want a 15-minute Shirley Jackson aside, and we can do that. Um, I think it's funny to compare our lists because obviously aside from the, uh, uh, ones we read for this podcast together, there's actually not much overlap this year. Uh, there was a little more last year, I think. <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, actually, I, I, that's one of the things I, I always like is that we now do this thing where we exchange lists. <laughs> so I get to steal ideas from your list, which I don't really have with anyone. I, I don't have Goodreads. You know what I mean? Like this is the most like manual Goodreads ever. Um, but you did read. But what's funny though is, and so I, feel, I feel like this year, this last year, you read a lot of books that I love, maybe more than the year before in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Like we didn't read the same books, but there were more books I feel like that are like, oh, I'm so glad you read that. <laughs> I definitely stole some stuff from your last list, and just in general from talking to you. So uh, I suspect you've read a lot more of the books on my list than I've read of your list. <laughs> That's possible. <laughs> yeah, that is possible. I had a weird year in reading. I feel like. I feel like with little kids, it's gotten weirder because in some ways reading has returned to like, it, it, you know, it's it's primary reason for existence for me, which is like, you know, just entertainment and sort of a break from life, right? Like, uh, which sounds so obvious, but I feel like, you know, I always talk about like, you know, in this age of endless entertainment, I feel like people who like to read are always geared up to defend reading as like the best kind of thing to do for your brain <laughs> which maybe it is you know what maybe it is but um but really of course what it is is like it's uh, entertainment it's escape at its at its root and so i feel like having kids um has definitely made me yeah go back to that as like you know even if it's like a philosophical tax or something if it's not accessible i've been a lot harsher this year with like i'm not gonna finish that that's boring i'm not gonna finish that that's you know that's dense in a way that i think is not intelligent you know what i mean like um but it's made for a, a weirder year because um, part of that is also like i do a lot of audiobooks now and so sometimes if i can't listen to an audiobook it has to be shelved for like I don't know, five years from now when my kids are sleeping or whatever. <laughs> that makes sense. I listened to more audiobooks this year than I have in a while. Uh, I didn't listen to that many, but five or six or seven maybe. 
and I in previous years don't listen to them at all. But there was a it was a period last year, this year we're gonna say this year and last year, and both times I think we mean twenty nineteen. Uh, uh, yeah, did. yeah. Uh, but there was a period of time in like the fall of of 2019 when for whatever reason I was in a real audiobook while walking the dogs kind of mood. So I listened to five or six things that way. I got to say specifically that listening to Jeremy Irons read Brideshead Revisited is a probably the best way to experience Brideshead Revisited. I guess I haven't personally experienced it any other ways, but I'd put decent money that that's the way to experience that book. <laughs> Honestly, so that's so it's so funny. So you know what the, the most annoying part about doing this in uh, the end of January <laughs> is that I'm definitely going to lapse into talking about some books that I've either read or started to read this year, but I can't help but say like so I've never really read Samuel Johnson. Um and I've read like some small stuff here and there, but you know, the big deal 18th century writer of the first dictionary um guy Never really read him. And I think it's so funny because, like, I, I feel like, you know, he's the kind of person I, I would read that you, people might think that I would read and like. But like everyone else, I was worried that he was boring because <laughs> he's from the 18th century. Right. Um, <laughs> and so I picked up finally just this last couple of weeks. Um, I read I, I finished it, but um, I picked up an audio version of his Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland. And Boswell, his biographer, wrote – you know, his own little journal on that experience because they went together. And this audiobook um, takes both texts, which a lot of books do, but it takes both texts and it intersplices them and it uses two narrators. And so it's not the complete text, it's actually abridged, but um, it has a text in like literal conversation so that they basically interrupt each other. And it's maybe the, the best audiobook adaptation I've ever heard because it, it, I think it genuinely enlivens the, te- you know, the text. And so I think there's this weird thing where like audiobooks are becoming more and more popular. And I haven't seen anyone be worried about it, but I think it, I think it was the first time that I've listened to a book where I thought this is a better experience than if I could read it. You know what I mean? Like I've I've had lots of great audio experiences, but this is the first time where I was like, this is the best introduction to Samuel Johnson I've had, and I'm probably going to read more of him just because of how they did this audio book. Which is I don't know, that's crazy, right? Like I feel like I would not have expected that, you know, five years ago to have so much audiobooks in my life that I don't know, they're actually changing what I will read. No, I think that makes sense. I actually, uh, I quit paying for Audible because I realized I had was spending a lot of money and not using credits there for a while. But I actually loaded up with mostly just classics because I think there's something about how listening to those out loud is a lot of fun and listening to them kind of in chunks is probably more accurate to how you were supposed to read them in the first place because they were all published serially, right? Like right. None, none of them were ever published as one bound text at first. So I, I definitely have gotten different books with my audible credits than i ever usually buy in paper copies so i don't think that's i don't think that's crazy i think different formats demand different reading habits yeah i guess i just i didn't expect like audiobooks to help me break into samuel johnson you know what i mean like of that all I, I i do understand that yes that <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah so I, I don't so usually people i feel like year in reading is usually just like the highlights of what people read um and i'm curious you know i don't want to start like there and then have nothing else to talk about but i am curious like like even off the top of your head i know we've both taken notes but like off the top of your head, like, you know, what, what did you enjoy this last year like, like that you think will stick going forward? So I think I read a lot of stuff this year that I liked. I actually did not have as many, like, really, really high peaks as I think I did the year before. But the big thing that I'm going to have to talk about, and I already mentioned this, is I did read the rest of Shirley Jackson's uh, published right. novels and her one published short story collection. She did write 
a couple of other things here and there that I haven't read that were published in her lifetime, and then, of course, like, a bajillion stories, which I haven't even begun to read all of. But I read all of her book-length published things that she published in her lifetime. And, uh, you know, Joel, I really like Shirley Jackson. She's <laughs> phenomenal. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was in 2018 that I read her two best books, which is... Uh, the Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which are still the best books she wrote. Like, that's true. But The Sundial and Hangs a Man in particular, I really liked. And then she wrote these two sort of memoirish things about raising children as a sort of a neurotic housewife in, like, Vermont. And they're both right. just a pure delight from start to finish. They're very, very, very good. Uh, they're also very funny as someone who cares about her as a like i read uh, ruth franklin's biography of her this year right. as well um because in the second one you can tell she's really a lot grouchier with her husband and she mostly manages to play it off as like haha funny you know battle of the sexes stuff except there's this sort of undercurrent of anytime he mentions that he has a new female friend she makes a joke and then you remember in the, at this point in the biography samuel hyman just could not keep his pants on it was just always running around and driving her literally insane so it actually quits being funny pretty quickly but um right. Reading these books, which are just intended to be read in, like, women's magazines in, like, 1958, uh, combined with knowing more about her history was, I think, a really fascinating experience. Um, one thing people say a lot about Shirley Jackson is they don't understand how the same writer could write both, like, The Haunting of Hill House, which is this great sort of horror novel, very psychologically complex, and this sort of allegedly lighter, fluffier... Um, you know, family memoir stuff. And in the first place, I think people contain multitudes. Stop it. <laughs> and yeah. in the second place, I think that you're not reading the memoirs very carefully if you don't think they're psychologically complex. Like, they are mostly intended to make you laugh, but there's actually quite a bit going on in most of them. Um, you don't just have to know her biography. And her ability to pull sort of horrific implications out of domestic narratives is why all of her books work uh all of her novels work and that's where she gets it from and you can see the seeds of it in there and you can see her putting a weirder spin on the weird stuff her kids get up to than i think a lot of other people might expect you know a 50s women's magazine writer to be doing right which would be because they're sexist i mean probably a lot of that stuff is more complicated <laughs> than we think of but particularly this stuff is do you know what i mean yeah no totally no i yeah i i totally agree with that it's actually um yeah i definitely agree with it is i i uh you know patron saint of the podcast francis spufford i feel like he's one of the best examples of like you know write whatever you want and you can sort of get away with it if you have like an earnest talent and interest but um i do think that in this day and like i feel like the professionalization of writing has become narrower and narrower um because i do think you know 50 60 years ago it was a lot more common for like every writer to like also try and write a play and write some poetry and write you know like I think writers today still do some of that, but um, it feels like people stay in their lane a lot more than they used to. Um, although, except except for the fact that I, I've I've learned as a librarian, now that I you know do you know books for children as part of my job, a surprising amount of really established literary writers they definitely have cashed in on the um, <laughs> on the book sales <laughs> of children's writing. <laughs> um, maybe that's a little cynical to say it that way. Maybe they maybe they really believe in it. But like I was surprised. So like Toni Morrison has written some children's books. Um, an author that I I actually I, I got to know a little bit when I was in Syracuse, who's awesome. She says she's a big book coming out. Jenny Awful. She's written children's books. But I I was surprised that Susan Choi, who wrote Tresser's Exercise, which I read this last year, and she won the National Book Award for it. She wrote a children's book, like a, like a picture book. These are all like picture books that you know someone else illustrates. Um, 
which I feel like people should talk about more. Like, I feel like, I don't know, like, I feel like that shouldn't be like a, a hidden thing that they do, but it is. Like, they don't advertise that on their, you know, web pages and stuff, um, which is interesting. I had, but an I, aside. Have, I had no idea Toni Morrison had written any of those. I know authors do, but I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, she has like picture books. And like uh, Louise Erdrich, um, you remember that book, that, uh, that, that story we read in high school on I'm a Mad Dog Biting Myself? Um, yes. So yeah, she's. I've read some of her novels. She's great. But she's written a whole like Little House on the Prairie series, which is basically from uh, the Native American perspective um, because that's you know her own perspective essentially. And I had never heard of them until recently. <laughs> but it's they're supposed to be excellent, and I just find that really odd that they would not. I mean, that's maybe on me. You know, that's probably my own biases and whatnot coming through. But I still was surprised by it. So, so what are one of the what's one of the big highlights you read last year? Oh yeah, good question. <laughs> well, the you I don't, asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I just you know, honestly, I was trying to think about because um, of course the most reading that I actually do is I I read to my daughter. You know, I read a lot of like picture books and stuff, and I I haven't really been recording that, and I kind of wish I I had, and I I probably should start recording kind of the highlights from our reading together. Um, but I really, as far as kids' book, just because I brought it up, I really like the the little blue truck. That one, that one rocks for any parents out there. Um, and there's some more, but I'll, I'll skip that, I'll skip that for now because I can't remember any of them. As far as the books that I read, like for Joel as a, an adult human, um, the one I think of, which is not probably my favorite per se at all, but I I really liked it. But I finished it as. Emily went into labor at our house. I was like at the kitchen table reading it at like 1130 at night. And my wife came out of our bedroom and she was like, hey, um, I think labor has probably started. <laughs> you should try and finish your book real quick. And then we'll go to the <laughs> hospital in a few hours. <laughs> and so I was like on the last page, basically. So I did finish the book. And it was uh, Kate Atkinson's transcription, which I thought was great. I thought that was a great novel. Um, I like Kate Atkinson. My wife's read more of her than I have, um, but she's one of those like popular authors who I don't like. I almost like want her secret because she writes like detective novels and she writes you know very like big selling books, but she's sort of that literary popular crossover who I think um, for a long time in my life I sort of dismissed. You know, like I wouldn't necessarily like reach out to those authors because they almost sold too well. You know. Right. The transcription yeah. was great. It's like about a you know, um, it's about a woman who's an MI five during World War two, and they they spy on these basically fifth column British you know Nazi sympathizers, and um, it's a really really good book, and it, it also encouraged me to read um, a favorite author that I already had, Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, you know, Kate Atkinson talks about like transcription is really inspired by human voices, partly by Penelope Fitzgerald which is about the BBC during World War II. And it was also awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. As far as the books that will stick with me, though, beyond – I mean, that one will stick with me because of my wife. You know, it's hard not to honestly – like, we had this problem last year um, with Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. But it's going to be hard for, for War and Peace to not kind of dominate, I feel like, um, my 2019 year in reading mindset because – I just that book was 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 bonkers. It was way more than I expected, and um, I, I find myself thinking about different set pieces or different psychological states he describes or different scenarios. It just pops up in my head as like, oh, this reminds me of that moment. You know what I mean? And I don't do that with many other books on my list, except for maybe like 
Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's I mean, it's kind of the cheap, you know, <laughs> it's the cheap big read answer, but War and Peace was a lot. I mean, part of it's you just put so much into it. It just sticks with you, you know? No, War and Peace is definitely, I mean, you're absolutely right. Definitely one of the main books that I'll be thinking about this year. I think I was more expecting it to feel like that. If that makes sense. So, like, when I got through War and Peace, it's I was true. like, yeah, it turns out this, the world's most famous novel is a really good book. You know, hey, it turns <laughs> out. It's true. Uh, and so, I, I don't think I'm surprised when I'm thinking about War and Peace the way that maybe I was a bit when I was thinking of Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, which I kind of went into saying, this is supposed to be good. And then I came out of it like I had to sit down. Changed. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I know. And, and so, uh, I don't know if it, it probably is similarly dominant, but it's more like, yes, that's sort of like God is in his heaven. That's how it's supposed to be. Whereas the other thing I was more surprised by. Um, I think one of the other books I really want to talk about, one of the ones that keeps jumping into my mind a lot that I would be remiss not to mention is The City and the City by China Meville. I think yeah. that's how he says his name. Um, I read a lot of good sci-fi this year. I read a lot of short fiction and sci-fi this year, actually, in particular. Um, but and I don't know if The City and the City, it's weird fiction. It's not even really, I don't know what the heck it is, but whatever it is, um, I think about that book all the time now <laughs> because there are so many things in real life that I, I think he's really captured in this sort of bizarre and absurd universe where there are two cities that are occupy the same exact space and physical space and they're differentiated sort of block by block and sometimes even smaller than that. And there's no actual literal magical distinction between these cities. It's just that the people in there have psychologically agreed to treat them as two cities and you can't go from one to the other without going through immigration in the center of the city <laughs> and such. Um, and it is the wildest book that manages to bring out this incredibly bonkers and, and sort of legally and psychologically complex idea in a way that I thought really flowed very clearly from chapter to chapter. Yeah. I really felt like I was discovering the world building stuff in a way that made perfect sense without ever feeling like he was looking me in the eye and saying, now, as you know, in 1926, the, you know, <laughs> no, I totally, well, and you said it best when we talked about it at one point, either on or off the podcast, which is, um, you get to the end of the book. And of course, I mean, is there even anything sci-fi or magical going on, right? Like, arguably, I don't think no. there is. Like, yeah, I mean, arguably, no. This is just like a cultural, like it's you know, it's a cultural mindset, sort of taken to an extreme for the sake of the book. But it it, it sort of is just like you know this agreement of how to live <laughs> more than it is any like you know ontological <laughs> or whatever, right? Like, there's not anything metaphysically, you know demanding they live like this it's literally just yeah a mindset which i thought was i thought was great i mean i really i really love that novel i haven't read that in like years but i actually that's a novel that i go back to when i think about like you know you know good good novels in general but actually of course good like noir novel updates well i also liked it because it's i think it ends well which is unusual for both weird fiction and this kind of stuff and you know the book is it's noir i think it is definitely at least adjacent to weird fiction I know China Meville has identified himself as a weird fiction writer, although I think more with some of his other stuff. And anyway, I just, I really liked that book a lot. I would definitely recommend that uh, a ton. It's not terribly long either. It's only maybe 250, 300 pages. So, um, yeah. Well, and I, you know, so I was, I was trying to think of like what else stood out in my head. I feel like I actually, I feel like I did come across like a lot of, I, I had several like new writers that I, that I was excited to kind of find. Um, and I'm always, I don't know. I'm always like, I don't know if this is like a weird perpetual like underestimation of myself or of like 
what people have written <laughs> but like so for example you mentioned like war and peace you know you expected it to be a big deal and i i did too but i think and i think you'd agree with this too i'm not i'm not saying you're saying anything different but i i think that i was surprised at how it impacted me you know what i mean like i thought it would be a big deal book but like a lot of what i took away was like the humor like the absurdity of the book yeah is what I remember most sometimes. And of course, I actually didn't expect the, I mean, I, maybe I have misremembered Anna Karenina, which does have some, you know, expository bits, but like, I did not expect him to have a full on, you know, nonfiction book inserted in the middle of this epic about, you know, the study of history and the possibility of free will and predestination being irreducible paradox <laughs> you know like um didn't see that coming and i he actually kind of he got me with that stuff which i feel like some people make fun of or don't like but actually a lot of that really spoke to me um but there's so there, there, so there, there, yeah so anyway so there's a few people who i feel like i'm always like oh i'll try them out i've heard good things about them and then i read them and i'm shocked that they're as good as they are um one was actually i read janet malcolm um i read the journalist and the murderer um, because I had read uh, Michelle uh, Dean's book Sharp, which is about a you know kind of a coterie of you know intelligent women journalists, including Rebecca West, um, middle of the century. That book was really good, um, and I was surprised by it only because you know I just didn't I didn't I don't know what I would think about like a book about journalism. But the biggest book that I I was neglectful to mention, um, I read Svetlana's Alexievich's Secondhand Time which is this bonkers oral history of basically perestroika, of the transition from Soviet Russia to modern day, um, you know, modern day Russia. And I, I mean, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's one of the few books I know I have to reread sooner than later because it contains so much in it um, that it's almost hard to like, talk about it without just saying like well here's what happens every single page do you know what i mean like i have to almost like retell every anecdote to get across the full effect of listening to this many different voices discuss their lives both in soviet russia often in you know the various prison camps or in the classic moscow kitchen setting and then their life after that which is just sort of also a, a different set of you know frustrations and degradations um but it was it was a really really impressive book, um, and I I definitely think one of the more important like books of history that I feel like will kind of continue to be relevant for years and years. Um, oh, the last author I should mention. Sorry to <laughs> sorry to talk so much. How dare you <laughs> on our podcast? <laughs> um, <laughs> but the other author that I was introduced to um, this year, who I, I I had heard about but I didn't know much about, was Robertson Davies, and he's this Canadian author. Um, who, who, who writes kind of these weird, um, Muriel Spark adjacent books. And I say that because like in Muriel Spark, um, there's never like, like she doesn't write sci-fi so much and neither does he, and they're not writing fantasy either. They're writing some sort of like weird spiritualism where like certain types of, I think, um, miracles or whatnot are possible, but it's not fantasy, you know, and it's not also like, it's not like religious lit either. It's some weird other thing um which he reminded me of but he he was great i i'd never heard of him he's a little long-winded but um i'm I'm excited to read more of his books in the coming year but uh who did you who who would you say like who 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 would you think that you would you know who who did you discover this last year 
One thing I did this year was I tried to read a lot of contemporary short stories in uh, science fiction and uh, a little bit of horror and a little bit of fantasy. So I, I got subscriptions to a couple of different short story magazines and read through most of those over the course of last year. I have a few that are still staring at me. Uh, so I, I read a lot of Asimov's, Black Static, Clark's World, Interzone, and some other stuff here and there. Um, and so there's a lot of short fiction that I read this year from people who were, you know, very much still writing uh, that I really, I found a couple of short story writers and such that I'm really keeping an eye on now. Um, Grace Siebold wrote a short story called The Visible Frontier for Clark's World towards the end of last year, and it just, I loved it. It blew my mind. It's about a, it opens with a, a, a sea captain telling, you know, the first mate or the new cabin boy on the ship how to read the stars because, you know, when they change and how they change is just, you realize very quickly, nothing at all the way our stars work in, in you know, right. the real world. And then they go to a basically an observatory that keeps track on it, and you begin to realize what kind of like what this actually is. That this isn't just some weird sci-fi thing, or that she's just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. There's a very particular thing she's describing what it would actually be like to live there, and it really blew my mind in a way I thought was fantastic. I read several short stories by Suzanne Palmer uh, in both Am uh, Asimov's and Clark's World and stuff that I really like. She's got I think one novel out, which is I think sort of a fun comic sci-fi romp called Finder. I haven't read it, but it's uh, it's got good reviews and. Uh, I would just generally shout out Clark's World as a magazine as a whole. I liked all the magazines I read this year, but Clark's World had more hits, I think, than anything yeah. else. Yeah, I feel I like you've, you've talked to me about that more than other ones for sure. It uh, it had some really really fantastic stuff. Um, it's also fun because in addition to just having a general focus, they have a couple of projects where they deliberately translate, um, where they deliberately get a hold of and translate some East Asian science fiction, uh, mostly Chinese, but also some Korean uh, science fiction. And, and they actually, the story's already been written, but they'll commission a translation uh, in conjunction with the author and print it there. And so that's really fun to see some some really dynamite science, good heavens, pardon me, some really dynamite science fiction from just very different cultures than a lot of sort of what I think of as American sci-fi. Uh, there's some really good stuff coming out of that. Uh, in terms of other writers I discovered this year, I mean, I didn't discover him in the sense he's very established, um, but I read my first Samuel R. Delaney book this year, yeah. and I, I decided to go for the top. See, my understanding is a lot of his stuff is kind of odd, but some of it's more traditional sci-fi, but for whatever reason, I decided to start with Dahlgren, uh, and boy howdy, <laughs> Dahlgren is... <laughs> Uh, I'll think about Dahlgren off and on for the rest of my life. Parts of it I really hated. Uh, parts of it I thought were brilliant. And big chunks of it I just sort of appreciated going through. Sort of like the way you might appreciate going through a natural landscape. Does that make sense? Where yeah. you're like, this is just how it is. And I kind of appreciate what's going on here. Um, Dahlgren is wild. Um, what is it about? I don't know. Uh, it's it's the first one of those. I, I don't read a lot of that kind of like really sort of narrativeless 800 page stuff. Like that's not really my scene. Yeah. Um, but when Dahlgren works, Dahlgren really, really works. That city is, is it feels alive. The main character in it, who is pretty much only ever called the kid, who might be named Dahlgren, who might not be named Dahlgren. The book loops around, it starts <laughs> mid-sentence, and the end of the book is also the first half of the sentence that ended, but that can't possibly be a circular narrative. It doesn't make oh, any sense as a circular narrative. What James Joyce does with Finnegan's Wake, well, that's funny. I'm pretty confident that Dahlgren is what would happen if James Joyce was a... Uh, bisexual african-american man writing science fiction in the 60s, right i mean that's very much what i mean <laughs> i haven't read any joyce but i'm pretty confident that's right um there is way too much like boring explicit sex in dahlgren like there'll be 100 pages where really what happens is and then everyone banged everyone else and it's really very boring and 
ludicrously explicit, uh, which doesn't offend me on a moral level exactly so much as I'm just, I get it, Sam. All right. <laughs> I, no, I, I have decided though. Like I, I do think I've come around to the idea of like, um, it's, it's an aesthetic cousin to probably like moral puritanism, but it's more of like, I just think things should be there for a reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, if you have any gratuity, like if a character talks too much, for example, that's something you have to explain. You know what I mean? So like, if you have to like, kind of justify that for, for for whatever reason or however you justify it like you should also have to justify your random amount of sex and violence <laughs> and i at this point i feel like uh that's my, my one probably thing i would i keep picking at with some of the the classic sci-fi fantasy stuff as well is like it just so often feels like you know this is just bad cinemax you know like why is this in here <laughs> when that's really i mean i'm not gonna but like there's definitely moments in this where you're just like all right well this was what Delaney was thinking about at two in the morning, and that's fine, but maybe I didn't have to read it. But right. some of his descriptions of this bizarre society that has grown up in this, it's its a, its a nameless city somewhere in the middle of the United States that has fallen prey to some kind of apocalyptic event, but it's never gone into any detail. No one's even very sure what happened, sometimes in the city, what it was that happened. But there's no government, really. There's just sort of roving bands of street gangs who are also sort of the police, Um and then there's these like literary society that puts out a newspaper and decides what day it is. And so you know what day it is because the newspaper has decided it's Tuesday or Wednesday. You know, very sort of surreal, strange society that's grown up around here. And our guy kind of wanders into the middle of it like a wrecking ball. And it's just a really, <laughs> it's really cool when it works. And it works for big chunks of the run. So I would say Dahlgren is very much worth reading. But it's worth reading, A, it's a million pages long. And B, you have to be in the right kind of frame of mind to get through Dahlgren. Yeah, One fair. thing I read about is Delaney is famously like very dyslexic. Um, and he, there's some reason to think that one of the things he was trying to do in this book was try to convey some of the experience of being very dyslexic and trying to move through other works of fiction and such. So the main character will lose significant chunks of time. Like he'll just, I don't know what happened this week. And other people will be like, well, don't you remember when you were at X, Y, and Z place and you did this? And he says, I, I don't. And it's because the narrative will skip it, right? So it's like the main character is in the same oh, perspective as the reader, where yeah. like stuff happens in between pages and books all the time, but the characters remember it and the reader's having to learn what happened through, you know what I mean? Yeah. But the no, character will smart. also lose what happened. And I like that. There's a lot of really strange, deliberate misspellings of words throughout that are, I guess, sort of connected with that. And it's a very interesting, artistically robust project. It's really a cool thing. I want to read more Delaney, but I think. I think it might take a minute before I do that because Dahlgren was a whole, a whole thing, man. That's I will a, say there's yeah. a scene when they're in a recording studio and the kid's main girlfriend is playing the harmonica. That is one of the best just paragraphs or two paragraphs of writing I've read in a hot minute. It just, I just wanted to live in that two paragraph scene. So anyway, that's a lot, but Dahlgren is hard to talk about. So <laughs> I think, you know, I already said it like with the whole, you know, I have young kids disclaimer, but I, I do think... I think that was one of the interesting things from this last year is there was a certain like inertia to my reading where I feel like I just not been able to like um, absorb or reflect on or kind of like, you know, categorize some of the some of the some of the like some of the ways the books landed on me are so instinctual and organic and just part of like the moment that they existed for. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of that's because like, I'm, we're just busy with kids, you know what I mean? Like we're so busy right now that like the idea of like reading a book is hard enough, but then to like reflect on it, I basically do it on the podcast with you. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I yeah. used to do it in several venues. I used to like have a newsletter where I did it and I used to talk about it with my wife more, but I feel like there's a couple of books that I, I'm going to have to reread at some point because I didn't properly digest them. Um, you know, which I always, I kind of hate, you know, like the, uh, the consuming metaphor for literature, like I'm eating this book, you know, as if I'm going to sh- out later. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, what I mean? there's just something that's like inaccurate about it probably. But, um, but honestly, like, so you're describing Dahlgren, you know, and the experience you had with it. And I, 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 I come back to War and Peace a little bit, although I was more focused for that because we're going to do the podcast, but definitely secondhand time continues to be like kind of linger in my head. And so does actually a really good book. That's not, it doesn't need any like digestion, you know, intellectually necessarily, but, um, I read Dignity by Chris Arnaud or I don't know how to say his name. Um, but he just basically, you know, he was a, on a guy on wall street who started walking into neighborhoods that basically people told him not to. He's a white guy, obviously in wall street, I should say, because who else would do that? Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, so and so he ends up be kind of like photographing and becoming friends with um, particularly this group of people, and I think it's Point Huron, um, this bad neighborhood in New York, and he starts to feel like there's a lot of basically you know misperception from his world about what it's like to live in America if you're not sort of like head of the class, literally the class, right? Like if you're not the head of education and you're not moving forward in life based on education and sort of the professional, you know, education industrial complex <laughs> that pushes you forward. Um, and so he kind of develops this very simple metaphor of like front row America and back row America. And, you know, the metaphor is grounded in education again on purpose because he thinks that's, that's where a lot of this sort of like default segregation happens but he ends up traveling the whole country and kind of doing a journalist job and he like mostly goes to mcdonald's in rough neighborhoods and talks to people and like that's the book you know but it really was it was a really impactful book you know at the moment i read it because it's so challenging of course of like you know how am i segregating my life without thinking about it but it also caused a lot of frustration because like I think lately I've dealt with, and you know, this feels like part of the conversation around books is like, you keep taking in more information, but I don't always know like what the action is supposed to be afterward for some of these nonfiction books. So like uh, Secondhand Time, the book about Russia, it felt like a real challenge to how we've, you know, basically let everything, everything's meaning be determined by money, right? Not a, not a new idea, not a big idea. But then you get to like how you live in your life, and I like, I, I I don't know, especially with a young family, like I don't know how to overturn my complicity in every single problematic system. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, and it, it's it, it, so at one point it was exhausting, and I and I I feel like it's a more pointed kind of you know it's a more pointed um, example of how the whole year felt with reading, which is like. I'm taking this great stuff in, but truthfully, like there's a certain way in which we're sort of trapped right now in a certain lane and we're not going to like, unless a few things change, which we're trying to change them, it doesn't really matter like politically, but also just like, I'm not going to have time for some of this book stuff in the way that I used to until my kids are older until job stuff is easier or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And so I don't know. So there's a way in which the luxury of reading and actually the luxury of like intellectual reading where you're trying to reflect on and build new ideas from the content like that being a luxury was really brought home to me this last year if that makes sense no absolutely um which i don't mean to just rant about sorry 
But, well, um, you know, this podcast is usually very organized, very structured. Um, I well, think this, this thing you're doing today where you're going on tangents is very unusual, and I don't like it. I wish you would stop. <laughs> well, and I just – it's just – it's it's I, I can't get past it because, like, I think it, it relates to how this, this year – 2020 has started for me. I started at reading um, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, which I want to ask you about, which I'm going to transition to in a second. But I also I, I also read um, Samuel Johnson, but then I read like uh, The Chronicles of Pertain by Lloyd Alexander, which I, I, I feel no embarrassment at any point in my life ever reading fun, awesome, good books, whether for kids or otherwise. So that's not what I mean, but I, it, but I, I do feel – um, I feel drawn to that a lot more right now. Like <laughs> the next book I want to read or the next books I want to read, I'm not looking to kind of, I think, be as meaty with some of my reading, which is both okay, but also I think there's some, it's like kind of a bummer that like, you know, like there's, you know, some point I will die <laughs> and I would like to read as much as possible before that. And um, it's a luxury, you know, it's actually a luxury to kind of tackle big intellectual projects. Then it's a luxury that I feel like, you know, people in the reading community don't talk about in a weird way but um but yeah anyway so you read you read mark fisher how was mark fisher uh so i read the only mark fisher i read was capitalist realism and you know i enjoyed it i don't think i probably gave it enough time to really kind of sink in and some of the ideas i had already heard i mean attributed to him but kind of filtered through other places you know yeah one of his big ideas is that capitalism and its current structure um causes mental illness right like that it right. actually it causes significant illness. Um, yeah. Not just probably that we're better at diagnosing mental illness. It's hard. To, it's always hard to compare, you know, rates of mental illness in 20, oh, 2008 or whatever he wrote it in with right. rates of mental illness in 1820, because of course we just didn't think about them the same way, but there's some reason to think that it actually causes like that we have more now. It's not just that we're better at diagnosing it or that, but there actually is more of some of these anxiety disorders and stuff. Well, and right. And I like, also, yeah, like there's a certain subclass of mental health stuff, right? It's not like all mental yeah. health. It's like we used to, we used to have these problems and that was maybe the problem from those systems partly. And now we have these problems and it seems like it is, it is happening in like a, a collective way that seems to be more than just like your chemical, you know, imbalance. Yeah, exactly. One thing I thought was kind of funny reading through it though, is there was a sentence and I, I actually think I quoted it and, and sent it to some of my friends. I think including you, and I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, it was like, one thing we could do in understanding this idea is to pull this useful idea from thinker, crazy, you know, keyword, thinker, crazy keyword, thinker, crazy keyword, thinker, crazy keyword, and I was like, Mark, no one knows what that means. I don't know what that means. Like, I don't... (laughs) And he's writing for a quasi-academic audience, and so I don't want to... But, you know, all of a sudden, we're reading this relatively coherent thing, and then here's, you know, Zizek, Leotard... uh, uh, what's his name, like four or five other people, all like two sentences, and I had to put the book down. And I'm like, if I'm putting this down, Mark, other people are not getting this far. <laughs> no, it's true. No, I do. That was, I know who some of these people are. <laughs> that was one of the funnier things about the book. I totally agree is that he, he writes mostly a very like accessible, essayistic um, style. And then he, I mean, he, he was an academic, but he can't help it. He like just drops into jargon for a paragraph. And it was a reminder to me of like how much I hate that world of jargon, not because it's not, it sometimes is necessary to be technical at a level that only insiders will understand. But I just, I, 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 I can never get away from the idea that like clarity <laughs> it is sort of the key to thinking, right? Like if you cannot be, if it's, if you're saying it in a way that's not clear, Surely there's a better way to say it, even if you're talking to other experts, right? Like, I don't know. Especially when we're not dealing with, like, especially when it's like we're not talking about a car engine where I have to name every car part exactly. You know what I mean? Like, there's other words for what you're talking about because we're talking about social issues. 
I, I actually found the sentence I had posted. It's, oh, thank goodness. Quote, At this point, it is perhaps worth introducing an elementary theoretical distinction from Lacanian psychoanalysis, which Zizek has done so much to give contemporary currency. The difference between the real and reality. And again, I get that. I get what he. I understand the distinction <laughs> yeah. between those two. I do. I do actually. I know a little bit about Zizek, less about Lacan or Lacan or however they say his yeah. name. But like, how does the average person parse that sentence? Is anything other than gibberish? I don't know. Um, so. No, I totally. Yeah, I. I liked. I, I. I did like the book though. I, I read it recently, but I. Uh, like you said, I, I. A lot of the ideas I'd heard before. Um, I really liked his. Uh, his reintroduction of the idea of disenchantment, which is a, something that I feel like I keep coming across, you know, that like the world has become robbed of its sort of like magical glow, um, which I sometimes I feel like sometimes people overstate the extent to which like the Middle Ages was full of enchantment and, and the extent to which that was a good thing. So like a lot of people, I think, just thought the earth was the earth and the sky was the sky. And if there were other things, it was like a way to explain how much their lives were crap. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like a, a peasant thinking that the mer- you know, that, that fairies were a good thing. Fairies were this terrible disaster that you prayed against, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so there's a way in which enchantment was also a reaction to like sort of life being perpetually against you in all things um which i'd like to hear someone who's an expert talk more about but i do i do agree with the basic idea of you know we've we've kind of lost a certain uh access to meaning that has been replaced by a market mindset i think that makes sense to me um but yeah yeah that was just i just noticed you read it and i was just curious what you thought (laughs) so thanks i think it's one of those books you were mentioning earlier some books that you probably didn't digest enough i think that's one of them i read it it's pretty short it's like 80 pages i kind of read it in one sitting and then i think maybe i should have sat down with it more another book like that for me is i know a book you really like is annie dillard's for the time being which i read and i enjoyed every second of it and i put it down and then like three weeks later i said i have not thought about this i think that's my fault like i don't think that's does that make does that make sense no i do I think I do think she has a certain style. She has like certain beguiling style because I I do think I mean it definitely is a book that I have thought about a lot in some ways. But I it's so readable. You know what I mean? Like there's such a it's such a forward momentum with like how she does it in like little it's like little bits. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to read all about the excavation of the um, um, terracotta army. Yes. Thank you. Um, you don't have to, you don't, like, you're not, you're not, it's not a whole book about the terracotta army, right? It's like you're reading in chunks about this. She goes back to the hospital or she, you know, she kind of jumps around this really, for me at least, forward, a way that builds forward momentum. And you get to the end. And I also think she's doing a certain poetic thing where like, like, you know, like what do you think her thesis is? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. does she have one? I don't know that she has a strict thesis so much as she's trying to demonstrate you know, again, I think it's about scale and meaning, but that's what I think everything's about right now. So that could just be my problem. Um, I think I think that's right for. I mean, the, there's the whole stuff about it. What what is it like individual lives against these just preposterous numbers that we can't comprehend? And you know, I, I right. think I think that's I think that's reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, which is like, which is why I think Tolstoy kind of leapt out to me because I think that's his whole conundrum is you look at someone you look inside someone's head and everything is so willful and meaningful and like decided and then you zoom out and they're just a cog in the machine and how do you like like that's the only problem and yet just because it's an obvious one doesn't mean it's not still a problem you know for how did we describe the world but um a book that we both read um that you and i are any are we are fans of this author to quite large extent (laughs) was uh exhalation 
Ted Chiang's, you know, um, last second collection. So, uh, what, what, what was your reaction to the, to the, to the probably the, the living master of the sci-fi short story? I think, in some ways, that was my reaction to this. Like, <laughs> I actually want to read it again because I read it and I was just like in awe the entire time. Not the entire time, but like most of the thing, you know. So I kind of want to read it again and try to enjoy the stories more rather than just sort of like looking at the wall and swearing every time you know what i mean <laughs> yeah totally totally but i mean i think that's really what i got through this and i i said right i have not by any means exhausted all of science fiction short stories there's huge chunks of people i haven't read but again i read a lot uh now of contemporary stuff at least right and like there's just nobody in the same league it's just not fair like the thing ted chang does is not every other short story like th- th- there's whole, he's a very particular kind of thing he tends to do right right but i have never seen anyone who does it better than he does and he's done it like eight times like there's there's got to be I mean, that whole like we're gonna we're gonna examine a world which is like ours but different in some significant way and we're gonna examine that world by following a character who's moving through it and coming into some kind of discovery about how the world works i mean that's the sort of general outline of six or seven of the stories and they're right. all just perfect like <laughs> no i i i totally agree i think he, he remains for me like i mean um I guess I might throw out there um, Ishiguru as someone who is like crystal clear, almost boring prose, and yet uses it like these perfect building blocks, you know, to set up this completely rational, completely inevitable conclusion or, you know, even sometimes epiphany, which, you know, people are so worried about epiphanies, but he, he just, it's such a, it's, a, it's such a rigid, intelligent, like, like causal machine, right? Like, because it really is just like a if this, and then he just goes then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, which is what you think everyone's doing until you read Ted Chang, <laughs> and you realize yeah. that no one else is doing it to the extent that they probably should, or to the level that he does it at. Because um, I also, I mean, he, he he's actually also someone who's interested in free will and predestination, which I thought Exhalation was was a lot about, to be honest. Even yeah, more a lot, than, definitely a lot of the stories are about that. Yeah, yeah it was more even more than um, you know his first collection. It felt like free, free will and predestination were really kind of the the thes- the theoretical grist of his of his mill or whatever. And um, and I I liked it, but I I also thought in a few of them at least he he really gave it some emotion, which I that's what always surprises me is he's such a smart, careful writer when he has these kind of little blips or explosions of emotion it feels so earned you know and i I really resonate with it like i've talked about you know um story stories from your life or whatever it is the title the title story of that one that was made into a rival that one's always been very important to me but i i thought there were stories in exhalation that were were kind of if not that level of maybe emotional reaction from me that i was certainly affected by they weren't just pretty and smart you know they were moving no, I would agree. I mean, I think it's easy when talking about Ted Chang to make him sound kind of sterile, and I actually never feel that way. Like, he's yeah, not same. one given to tremendous flowery, you know, prose descriptions of people's emotions, but I think that characters come to very emotional decisions in a lot of his stories and do so in a way that I think is very compelling and, and moving, I think, as you put it. I mean, I think the title story, Exhalation, which is basically oh, yeah. about a bunch of really weird robots discovering that they're doomed, <laughs> I found actually really quite moving. Like, it, even as it's partly an explanation of like three or four very different ideas about how the world and robots could work or whatever, right? Right. It comes to the, the main character kind of comes to this realization that, you know, the heat death of the universe is going to happen. And I really thought it was very moving as it worked through. I, I thought the character who's, 
I can't remember the name of the story, but the one about um, intelligent design, right? The short the story yeah. where where the whole world Love is that. they have they have clear proof of exactly when everything came into being. Like you can look at trees and you can see the rings for every year that was lived naturally and you can see the point in the middle where the tree sprung into existence and you can look at old mummies that don't have belly buttons and you know they were you know right. and so on uh and that character goes through this massive crisis of faith as they uncover some new information which drastically changes how they think the world works and her sort of journey even as in some ways it's kind of trite like she's writing prayers and like letters to god right which is not yeah. a new th- i mean that's the color purple and stuff right I mean, it's not a new idea but i still thought it was really persuasive and really moving as she goes through this complicated journey and i don't know he's just the best he's just the best i do think so i actually that story in particular and then the story from his first collection which is which basically um makes hebrew cosmogony literal (laughs) you know like like the physical earth that was described by you know ancient hebrew cosmology like or cosmogony i would say um you know, he makes it like a like literally. You dig up through, through the earth, through the sky, and you find the earth, whatever, right? Um, he, ha- I feel like he's. I've I've seen this maybe once or twice. People have mentioned him, like as a religious writer. But actually, I don't think he gets enough credit as being one of our most profound religious writers in the sense that he is examining faith in so many of his stories. And what I love that he does, like with the story you just mentioned, is he basically says, okay, let's uh, let's basically take a world and make it a young earth creationist world, right? It's going to be straight up like 6,000 years old. God popped it into existence. And then he kind of, again, he takes you through these <laughs> different chains of thought to expose the real fragility and um, emotion of what it means to have faith, even if exactly what you think is true is true. You know what I mean? Like it, he gets you to the experience of what it's like to have faith I say as someone who has faith at least, and um, he does it by kind of taking everything like to its absurd, you know, uh, yeah, he makes it absurdly concrete, right? And yet he still, he uses that to get to like what it feels like to have faith and to have doubt. And I, I don't know, I, that's, that's to me was, uh, it's hard to think of a story that does that better, you know? No, agreed. It, it makes me think a lot. I think this is Kierkegaard. I haven't, thought about this in a long time so i might be mangling something but doesn't he doesn't kierkegaard kierkegaard, kierkegaard however you say it have a thought about how you know even if you could 100 percent prove the factual existence of all the stuff in the new testament or whatever that wouldn't change the fact that you would still have to have faith like that would not be sufficient isn't exactly that? yeah yes yeah. yep. and that's really yep. what that ted chang story feels like it's exploring is that idea which i think a lot of people have a hard time with when they read that portion in like whatever philosophy class they're reading right um but that's I don't know. And I also, I mean, this is in the last collection, but the, the Tower of Babylon is just, oh, I just kind of so want good. to print it out. And like, that's just, that's what I want to do. Like, is that, yeah. like, that's. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, what's so funny is I think that I'm probably incapable of doing that. And it, but it, I, like, it, it brings me joy that there's someone out there doing it that well, you know? Because um, what, what I love too is that there's no cheap shots in Ted Chang, for me at least. Like, so he takes this young creationist, you know, earth and it, it is in some ways a reductio ad absurdum, ad absurdum of young creationists, but it's actually not mocking them for believing in a young earth or whatever. It's, it's, it's actually like this weird, you know, way of revealing like that's not the heart of faith and to emphasize it is not wrong just because like it's obviously wrong, <laughs> but it, yeah. but it's, it's wrong within the logic of your faith. That's a really powerful 
response and rebuke, but it's also a really considerate one. You know, it's a weirdly respectful one um, that I think is partly why I say like he, he is one of the more profound writers on religion. And, it, you know, it's not obviously not just Christianity, but he does seem to circle that a, a lot more than, you know, I would have expected when I first picked him up. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's just our public notice that <laughs> Ted Chang is great and everyone should read him. Um, and uh, I think I've said I've made this point before, maybe on the podcast. There are some writers who are so good that when you talk about how good they are, you feel like you're just being ridiculous. Like, like it's just it's so self evident yeah. that you know it'd be like getting up and saying, you know, the Grand Canyon is just really beautiful, guys. Did you know that the Grand Canyon? Like, yes, I I know that, like that. And Ted Chang feels like that to me. Where I think sometimes if you ask me to list my favorite writers, I might not think of Ted Chang just yeah. because he was never at any point surprising. And if, yet, if you said Ted Chang, I would be like, yes, no, I'm sorry, One he's probably favorites. my favorite short story yeah. writer, maybe of all time. <laughs> At least very close. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I totally. I think I, I kind of agree. I mean, yeah, he's definitely up there for me as a short story writer. Um, I do think. I mean, without being you know too boring on this on this tangent either, I do think the whole idea of like reinvigorating an audience's desire for something. I do think that's like a key critical, um, comp- like a, a key critical like behavior that you know, people are supposed to do, right? So I, cause I feel like it's so hard to get past something's reputation. I mean, it's hard to just read period. Cause honestly, there are, there are other ways to be entertained at night. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then to also, and then to tell someone like, you know, everyone, I think everyone is sort of um, averse to the strong cell, right? No one wants to actually <laughs> be strong armed into liking anything. And so when you hear that war and peace is the best novel of all time, you're like, great, I'll probably read something else. <laughs> Sounds like that's yeah. been established, you know? Um, but I think the you know one of the the key things that I, I about certain critics who you and I read to get who you and I have read like um, B D McClay is actually one of these. Um, she she does a good job like re enlivening or you know reigniting my interest in people I've already heard of you know so like actually that's true of Lloyd Alexander. I ended up reading the Chronicles of Bourdain because there was someone on the internet who I trusted who kind of went through why these are such great books and everyone should read them. And I realized, oh, I just skipped them and I kind of wrote them off as like another decent but kind of I already know what it does series until someone sort of made the case for it. And so I do think it's a weird thing where like as much as like the most established authors already talked about too much, I feel like what what I hope to do and I'm no, I have no interest in being a critic, but like what I hope to do in my personal life is find a way to like reinvigorate my descriptions because they deserve it you know like and also they it's like necessary to get past the packaging of classic status um like with Tolstoy I think you and I keep coming back to that he's funny because no one expects that literally everyone I've told that to has been surprised okay so now that we've talked about classics I want to talk about comic books for a second (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's do it (laughs) I read a lot of comic books this year most of them were Marvel superhero stuff that's contemporary it was fun but not you know nothing I really want to talk about but I want to talk about two things um I want to talk about Tom King in general because Tom King is the best Um, Tom King wrote the Marvel run on the vision which was 12 issues long and at least I think is still the only vision solo series uh he wrote Mr. Miracle which came out I think in 2018 um, which was fantastic. He wrote The Sheriff of Babylon, which was a 12-part comic that he wrote for DC about a murder mystery set in Baghdad in about 2004. Because Tom King had been a CIA agent and had actually been in that part of the world around that time. Which is um, a crazy biography he, for a comic writer. I yeah, think. He's had a m- much stranger <laughs> yeah. life, yeah. 
uh, he has been writing Batman for a while. He just stopped. I have actually only read so much of that, and I know it's controversial for different reasons, and I don't have an opinion. Um, but I read both Mr. Miracle and uh, The Sheriff of Babylon this year and was really just blown away by how cool Tom King is. He wrote he, he, The artist on both of those books is Mitch Gerads or Gerads, I actually don't know how he says his name. And in both of those books, they commit to this nine-panel three-line format for the overwhelming majority of the books, which gives it a regularity, which particularly in the Mr. Miracle book, Mr. Miracle is a DC superhero who's an escape artist. Like, that's his whole power, basically. And so forcing him into this rigid format is brilliant. Um, And it works really well in The Sheriff of Babylon, too, which is trying to tell this sort of murder mystery in this setting, which is very foreign, I think, to most of us, right? Um, He also does really ridiculous things with text. Actually, both of those have occasional patterns, panels, which is a black panel with a single word or two words in the middle. Um, he uses actually them very differently. They look similar, but they actually have very different meanings. The best is in the Sheriff of Babylon very early on, there are sort of three main characters. One of them is an American, uh, CIA agent. I think he is. And then there's a, uh, Baghdadi cop who's been a cop in Baghdad for a million years. And then there's a woman who is part of the like transitionary Iraqi government. And the American soldier at one point goes in to try to stop someone who is at least theoretically sitting in the middle of the mess hall with a bomb vest on. Right. And he's trying to talk her down, and then there's just a blank panel, a black panel with the word bang in the middle of it. And no one knows what's going on for a second, which is the smartest way, I think. I mean, I've never been in a firefight, right? But I can only imagine, you just hear a loud bang, and it's not clear what happened. Like, it's not like there's a laser gun that points through, it was not a halo sniper rifle trail that says who <laughs> shot who and why, right? Um, and so that's what it is. Like, the next two pages are just confusion until you figure out what that noise was, right? And it's just the best way of just isolating how confusing that really must be that I could imagine. And then in Mr. Miracle, he uses the phrase dark side is, which is dark side is the big sort of Thanos figure in the right. uh, DC universe. That's backwards. Actually, Thanos is a dark side ripoff, but anyway, um, and dark side is, is a phrase from an earlier comic writer that Tom King u- repurposes to basically mean, you know, the universe is hollow and depression exists. And he just throws it out there. Whenever the main character is being sort of, trapped in some kind of uncomfortable situation to remind him that or sometimes when he's in a good situation just to remind him that yes the world is still you know hollow and everything is terrible and i don't know he just does so much clever stuff in his comics the vision is amazing these both were amazing and he's writing the new gods movie with uh, ava duvernay oh which yeah is that's right so. i forgot that actually um I, so you sent me you actually sent me vision and um sheriff of um babylon and i've only read vision i will admit <laughs> but um Quite right. uh, but no, but I loved it. I mean, I, I, I loved it in a way that I, I didn't expect to love it. Um, I wish I could remember more of it now. Like, cause I, you know, what's funny is of course what, what sticks in my mind are a lot of the illustrations. Um, but the writing is what got me. Like I remember texting you like, um, Hey, I just picked it up and I read the first few pages and it's incredible. And you quoted back to me one of the things that's written in the first few pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that's like, it, cause it sticks, you know, it, it, it does have, you know, this really, you know, it's, re- it's really written, which I don't think is always true of comic books. I um, mean, sometimes it could, you know, a lot of comics can be overwritten, but he, he's got, I mean, yeah, he's, he's got a way with, um, He's got a way also like he's got a way for the like for the vision. He's got a way of doing all of the kind of classic comic book things where like you have too many characters and too many plots and too many reversals. He has a way of doing it that that was also it felt much more um 
organic, you know, like, cause I feel like whenever I get into a, a comic book spell, I go for, a, I go with a series for a while and then I almost always pull out because it's like the eighth reversal of something that just happened. And it's, you know, this kind of, it becomes, it's like, you know, classically the cliche is it becomes kind of this continuity porn and he does such a great job of drawing in other storylines or other ideas or other past, you know, instantiations without ever overwhelming me with like, Hey, this is what this guy is. Do you remember him? You know what I mean? Like, it's always like, Oh yes, Scarlet Witch was there. You know, like it, makes sense to me in a way that you know I, i'm not annoyed by um which i really appreciate <laughs> well that that makes sense like and i i there's a scene early on in vision somebody or about maybe halfway through vision somebody gets killed in vision's house and there's a police investigation yeah. right and the vision is just sitting there at this mundane murder investigation in dc and he can't stop thinking about all the time he's saved the world and he's now here in this petty I mean, it's not really petty, but, like, somebody broke into his house and the guy died, right. right? And so he's just kind of involved in this, like, incredibly low-stakes thing, and all he can think about, and the narrator is just going, you know, the vision saved the world this time, and then this time, and then this time. It's not a lot of detail. It's not, like, remember this lengthy comic book sequence? No, it's just, like, Ultron, then Ultron again, then this, then that. And it's just a great way of juxtaposing this otherwise pretty straightforward, you know central casting interrogation scene with the ridiculousness that this character who's gone through all the preposterous things that the Marvel comics have thrown at him, you know, he's unmade existence and remade existence and done all this is now talking to a cop about a murder no, and investigation. And I just, it's you're right. That's actually, yeah, that's, that's the heart of why the series is good. And it's funny because they, he, he avoids with the help of his illustrator who I forget, sorry, artist. Um, it's a, uh, Gabriel Hernandez Walta, okay. I think, is his name. Which is great. Great work, by the way. <laughs> Gabriel. <laughs> um, but they but what you know what, what I liked though is that so the, the like the heart of the series is Vision wearing a suit and going to work and having a family, right? It's him having a small life as not just a superhero, but as like a robot other <laughs> you know, like he's completely different, not just because of his powers, but because of the kind of superhero he is. And so the the beauty and the fun of it is, you know, this domestic scene, these, these various domestic scenes that the robots are basically inhabiting, right? Including just literally the look of it. Like him in a suit is hysterical, I think, every time in some ways. And yet they they really did a good job avoiding it ever being just a gimmick. You know, it wasn't just a cheap way to kind of bring a different story to the table. And they do, I think, because they really take it seriously that, like, you know, there's an earnestness to comics that I've always liked, which is that, like, Vision wants a family, you know? And, like, what are the what are the stakes of having a family? Well, they're not saving the world, but it is sort of this, like, daily heartbreak <laughs> that sometimes ends up with you killing someone, apparently. But, you know, it is, it is these daily <laughs> tensions that, um, that, yeah, that would be that would be impossible for, of course, you know poor vision as a robot to totally understand until he goes through them. But I, I, yeah, but that, that the aesthetic of him in a suit at a table with a cop, I think is, is definitely the heart of why it's good. Um, and yeah, it is really good. I, I should reread it actually. Hey, so one of the books I saw that you read that I was kind of curious about is you read a swiftly tilting planet, which is the third book in the wrinkle in time series, I think, uh, which is mostly about Charles Wallace going around and having some kind of adventures. I read it when I was like 10 and haven't read it since. Um, how are the post-Wrinkle in Time books? Because I actually read The Wrinkle in Time about a year ago, and it was more or less, it was very good, right? But it's more or less what I remembered it being. But then I sometimes think about the post ones, and I'm like, well, there's the one where they go down on the single cellular right. level and hang out with an angel made of wings. <laughs> and there's the one where Charles Wallace has some kind of thing with like a Pegasus. And then there's the one where Sandy and Denny or whatever their yeah. names are, go to they the go to Noah's Ark. And, <laughs> and like, yeah. they, like they, they have a love triangle with um, Noah's daughter who, you know, is not in the Bible, obviously. 
And I just, I thought about those a minute, and that one in particular, I couldn't even remember anything about a Swiftly. And that's because, you know, I read it 20 years ago. It's not really anything right. about the book. But I just, what's what's that about? Like, what's that like? Um, it's funny. <laughs> so I, um, I mean, yeah, I, like everyone else, I feel like, at least in our our, our friend group, I loved Minkle and Time Series growing up. And I, I read Swiftly the Thing Planet. I, it was always in my head because I, when I was a kid, when I read it, I don't remember how old I was, 12 or younger or whatever. But it was the first book that I ever read, like, I read it through... And then I read it through again because I liked it so much. And so right. I thought I remembered it really well. It turns out, Bill, that I did not. <laughs> <laughs> what you said about the Pegasus is mostly true. It's a unicorn that has wings, um, which – All right. That yeah. was close. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, and it's basically an alien angel-type figure um, that comes to Earth to help. So, like, the world is on the precipice of World War Three. you know, like the nuclear holocaust war. Um, a made-up country in kind of the Patagonia area um, of South America. This made-up country is like run by, you know, kind of a despot, and he has some nuclear warheads, and he's going to use them. And it's going to start sort of the Cold War disaster that everyone at the time feared. Because it was written like in the 70s, this book. Um, right. And so the, yeah, the Murray family gathers for like Thanksgiving, um, and, <laughs> and this crazy, I don't even know how to describe the plot. Because it's, it's, I really, I liked it. There's a lot of problematic stuff um, that people from today's, you know, uh, society would object to. Um, but I still liked it, and uh, and so basically, <laughs> sorry, Meg Murray's mother-in-law comes to the dinner, and she gives Charles Wallace what's called Patrick's rune, which is like a phrase, like. Um, at Terra in this fateful hour, I call on um, all heaven with its power. And then it goes on for a while. She like just says that. <laughs> and like the, and then a unicorn comes and they travel through time trying to correct a family genealogy so that the despot in South America becomes a good guy, not a bad guy. Um <laughs> very good and so, and so like like all like all of lingual stuff like she's really interested in genetics and so it has some real science behind it and it has it does deal with my favorite thing is that there actually was a legend of welsh indians um who like the welsh supposedly came to america like in the eight in the eighth century or something maybe and that there were supposedly reports of like blue-eyed indians who spoke what sounded like welsh um and some of the first settlers of america from england from that part of the world specifically they thought they had you know the legend was they had discovered this like Welsh Indian descendants. Um, it was a big enough legend that like Thomas Jefferson believed in it. When he, when Lewis and Clark went across the country, he told them to try and also find the Welsh Indians. Um, and so that part was really fun. So it's really well researched, but like it was a pretty bonkers book. And the best part was I listened to it with my mom and brother during our road trip to Oklahoma for Thanksgiving. And there's like a lot of like, you know, like, <laughs> like in all of her books, there's a lot of like the bad religious people fighting with the good religious people, you know? Um, and right. so at one point my brother Mark stopped the audiobook and he was like, this is stressing me out. We're about to literally go do this in Oklahoma, <laughs> you know, like at the table with other people. Like, I don't know that I can finish this book. But sorry, what I would say, though, is it was a fun book, underrated, and that the best part of it was the opening chapter. The opening chapter is dope. It's very good, um, very fun. And Patrick's Rune, which I kind of made sound silly, Patrick's Rune was honestly like the delivery of it was very impactful. So it holds up overall, even if some of it's clunkier and 
again, some of it's problematic um, with some of the, the genetic stuff. But yeah, it's good. I mean, I haven't read Many Waters, the one about Noah's Ark, but that one I remember as a kid being like, I'm, what am I reading? <laughs> what are these angel figures doing hitting on, you know, the humans? <laughs> Yeah, because it was like all the Nephilim yeah. and stuff in yeah, that yeah, one, yeah. right? Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, and it's like, it really is like literally Noah's daughter falling in love with these two twins. And it's just, I just remember being like, like Madeline Lingle has one book in particular that's all about sex. But whenever she like has her character start to discover sex, I can never tell if like she's being very brave and interesting or if it's kind of like just a little cringe, to be honest, where it's like, is that, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> I don't know if that's how I felt when I was 13, you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was a really That's fun really read, funny. though. Um, recommend. <laughs> um, a book I wanted to ask you about, which I couldn't remember because I was looking at your list, but um, I have not even really heard of it, but you read a book called Because Internet. What is that? Oh, Because Internet is a really good book. Um, it's Gretchen McCulloch is, or I'm not sure she has her last name, is a linguist. Um, and among other things, she studies sort of internet linguistics. Um, and she wrote a whole book basically trying to explain some of the, the more interesting uh, internet linguistic things that happen and why they are not the end of the world and just, in fact, natural evolution of language. Um, it's I'm very interested in that sort of stuff. She obviously knows a lot more about it than I do. I don't mean that. But in terms of the sort of the evangelical portion of the book or whatever, like, please, the children are not destroying right. language. Like, I was already on yeah. board. So there were big parts of it that were kind of preaching to the choir to me, which is not to say they're bad. I just sort of personally was... You agreed. Like, yes, yes I agree. <laughs> Next, you know. Um, but that's not really a criticism of the book. But she has some great ideas. Um, one is she, she has kind of a fun thought about emoji, right? So first of all, she, she says that you hear people say emoji or hieroglyphics. Like that's a common sort of like baby boomer joke. Like, oh, we've reverted to hieroglyphics again. And Gretchen McCulloch says that's not it at all. Like, that's actually not what's happening in the least. You know, hieroglyphics aren't really representations of things. Some of them are, I guess. But most of them are not actually, like, a little fish symbol does not mean right. a fish. It means a phoneme. It means a particular sound. It just happens to be a fish for whatever reason. Um, whereas emoji are still at least theoretically representations of things. She has this great idea that what they really are is gestures. Um, they're ways of... I think you've told me this providing... before I just forgot. This sounds familiar. Keep going, though. No, Sorry. I mean, I... I <laughs> Uh, so, so sort of like a way of providing additional context for the words you are using or a way of communicating an idea that in real life, you, or not real life, because she actually doesn't like that, and neither do I actually, but like in, in interpersonal communication, like face-to-face, -face, you would just shrug, right? right? Yeah. Um, if somebody says, what do you think is going on here? I might just shrug and not say anything or make sort of an eh noise, you know? And emoji is a way of doing that sort of stuff in text communication. Um it's a way of, because there's different ways of, of communicating meaning. And I, it was just a great idea. And she has a lot of other fun stuff about, there's some of it's the history of Unicode development and how emoji are actually not always consistent from platform to platform and how that's been really interesting, what they should standardize and what they shouldn't. Emoji and emoticon actually are two etymologically distinct words, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> emoticon is English. It's from emotion like right. icon. Emoji is actually Japanese. And it, I forget the way it breaks down, but the emo part is not emotion. It refers to a word for picture, I think. Uh, so anyway, Really good book. Really enjoyable book. Very easy to read. Very fun. Um, good book. You also read, I mean, I, I know we're probably, probably getting to the end of our, our steam here, but I, I have to bring it up because it's one of my all-time favorite books. And I, I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast. We talked about it in our you know personal life at least at some point, but you read uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. <laughs> 
I did. Is... Uh, I read it because you told me it was so good, and you were right. It's very, very good. <laughs> I know. Well, that's that's definitely one of the classics that I that kind of kicked off my post MFA life with sort of like a I don't know a reminder to myself to like to read widely and to to also not skip over the obvious stuff because I I actually hadn't really heard of her which I think I talked about before I hadn't really heard of her till I was like thirty you know I just didn't know who she was that's how kind of um, benighted I was but um. I read Prime and Miss Jean Brody. That's actually the other book <laughs> um, that I've read back to back, basically. Um, that and Swift and Tilting Planet <laughs> when I was 12. Um, but I, yeah, I thought I, that book, I think, is, is, is definitely the best book of hers that I've read so far. But I, I read her debut this last year for the first time, The Comforters, and I was almost angry about it. Like, I was angry at how good it was. She wrote it around my age. And it's just, it's so confident in so many different ways, and it's so pitch perfect from the get-go that it sort of felt like, how is this fair? You know, like, how is it fair that someone would be this gifted and spend her 20s doing something else and then turn to novels because she got nowhere with poetry, you know? Um, but yeah, I so far she is not, dis- I have not been disappointed by any book I've read by her. But her debut was particularly offensive <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had heard of Prime of Miss Jean Brody, I think exclusively because Maggie Smith played her in a movie, yep. right? And so I had sort right. of heard heard of the, the book. And you said it was, you know, you had said very, very superlative things about it. And so I picked it up because I was like, you know, my friend Joel is usually, at least, if not right, <laughs> at least I'm interested in why he's wrong, if yeah. that makes sense. Actually, I don't, think I've, I don't think you've ever had a book you really loved that I didn't at least like. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. But anyway, I, re- I picked it up sort of for that reason and read it actually on a, on a dock, on a, on a lake, in the summer, it was beautiful. And uh, it's just a really very, very, very good book. Yeah, um, it is. I was not prepared for all the cool stuff she does with the time skipping around. Um, the book, trying to plot the book like chapter to chapter on a timeline would be very annoying. Like it wouldn't be that hard, but it would take a long yeah. time because she skips around sentence to sentence. Um, like on page two, she tells you that one of the girls, uh, so it's like a, not a, it's not even, I guess it is a boarding school. That's not really a boarding school, but it's a school regardless. And there's all these girls that are sort of associated with this teacher, Miss Jean Brody, who is just kind of a, a very interesting person. And the book will tell you about the futures of all of these girls on like page two or three. And one of them dies in a fire. Running around. Um, and the book never lets you forget <laughs> nope. that. The whole time you're reading about this character who's this kind of uh, silly and not very smart and kind of just awful not like cruel exactly, just kind of useless. Like that's kind of right, everyone yeah. thinks of her that way, and she never does anything not to earn that, right? Uh, and, and just every every time she comes up, basically, Muriel Spark will remind you that, and in twenty years or whatever, she's going to die in a fire, <laughs> running from room to room. I mean, it's not quite that blunt, but it's close. No, it is, and it yeah. really works. Like it's really effective. You're like, oh my god, it puts you in this weird state of sympathy with this woman that you might have had sympathy for anyway, and now you have this sort of cosmic irony sympathy. You know what I mean? Well, that's what. So that's what I, <laughs> I love know. about. It's a good you book. Know, Machine Brody has some more sincere moments than some of her other books but i i can't get past like so like she does she's so good at like um basically playing between like black humor and actual like tragedy (laughs) right like like so much of prime machine brody is like sort of this loss of innocence narrative right but it's dealt with in such like kind of comic terms i think like the fire stuff is like I feel like she go like like based on the number of times she repeats it, it goes from like funny to tragic to funny again. You know what I mean? Like it keeps changing because of how often it comes up, at least for me. Um and it's one of the things I love most. It's, I, I feel like I I'm more and more drawn to this like this certain type of British 
um, like mid-century humor. Like Evelyn Waugh had it, you know, Muriel Spark had it. I think Penelope Fitzgerald had it. Um, they're all really, really funny, but they're all funny in like the, the most depressing ways possible, um, which I love. Brideshead Revisited is definitely like that. There are a lot of jokes where you're like, oh my God, this is funny. And also, oh my God. Yeah, right? <laughs> no, I know. It's it's terrible. And, I mean, Penelope Fitzgerald maybe is the most kind of starkly like witty. Um, like one of the books that I read this year from her, um, which I guess spoiler for you, Bill, and for everyone else, if you don't mind, do you care if I read this book for you? No, <laughs> <Okay>. I don't. <laughs> so it's The Human Voices, which is great. My only complaint is that I do wish it was longer. I wish we'd, I had like 200 more pages with these characters. But um, it ends with like this guy mistakes a – he thinks a taxi is waiting for him outside and it's just an unexploded bomb and it blows him up. <laughs> And that's how the book ends by him making a mistake <laughs> about a taxi. <laughs> um, and it, but it's like it's very meaningful. But it is it's very like it's a punchline. You know, it's like a literal you know punchline almost. Boom. But yeah, no, I do wish. I mean, I think looking over the list of books that you read and that I read actually, because I, I keep my books. I just write them down in a list in like the order I re- I finish them. Um, and what always strikes me is like how long ago last year felt, <laughs> like the beginning of the really? year. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, like the first <laughs> book I read last year was um, The Souls of Yellow Folk by Wesley Yang, which is just a collection of his essays, which was kind of up and down. Like some of them were really good and some of them were not great, I thought. But um, that feels like, I mean, that, that feels like way more than a year ago. I remember texting like you and some other people about it. And I, I remember kind of like talking about it. And it feels like that was a different Joel who talked about it. Do you know what I mean? Um, I completely understand. Yeah. yeah. No, I, the first book I read last year was Kitchen Confidential. And I remember sitting in my chair reading that on New Year's Day. And that, yeah, that was at least eight years ago. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. No, it's nuts. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's sort of a weird thing to like, I don't know, because I feel like right now, especially as you age, it's like, you know, kind of the cliche is that time gets faster. And it totally does. That's, there's no debating it, I feel like, because partly because I think your consciousness is, is, you know, more similar year to year. And so, you know, um, it doesn't feel like things have changed as much, which is how you track time. But the point being is that, um, I, I, as 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 quickly as it feels, <laughs> these lists of books that I've read are sort of a nice time capsule of like, no, 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 a year is significant. You know, it feels less than it did when you were twenty two because you've had so many more years between now and then. But like, there's still a lot that happens. It's just impossible to actually keep track of. I also, yeah. So yeah. Um, what else do you want to talk about, Bill? Anything, or are we uh, are we out? I just had a couple of <laughs> quick things, I guess, really quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, one is I read a book called Everfair by Nisi Shaw. I think that's how she says her name, Nisi Shaw, maybe. Um, which was a kind of a fun steampunk alternate history where the people in the Belgian Congo, like they, they come together and they make a colony there, which is comprised mostly of. It's comprised of some, like, African-Americans who go there sort of to try to get away from the United States, some white people who are concerned about the Belgian Congo and are trying to create kind of a socialist paradise, and a lot of the different sort of uh, groups that, you know, like native groups that live there all kind of come together to try to build this clumsy society that ends up discovering, like, a cool sort of steampunk alternate power source and being able to really fight, like, Leopold's army on equal terms and so on, right? Really cool book, lots of great ideas, and it's about half as long as it should be. The book goes through about 40 years of alternate history with all kinds of really interesting characters and really wild ideas that are all, at every point really great. There's some characters I really cared about, um, and it needs to be a thousand pages long. <laughs> I, I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it needs yeah. to have, maybe not literally a thousand pages, but it needs to have much more of a war and peace kind of scope, I think, to work as well. And uh, it doesn't, so it feels really rushed, which is a problem because she's actually great sentence to sentence. Um, 
it opens with one of the characters who's going to be very much involved in the whole shindig, right? Who is a f- young French woman who might be part black. Like, there's a lot of speculation about her grandfather and so on, right? Which kind of hangs over her head to the point where what you know, the racial dynamics of this colony, or this, it's not exactly a colony, but of this country, or what, what, part of what's so fascinating, right? Because you have... Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it opens with her, like, on the top of a hill on her bicycle, just riding the bicycle down. Nothing happens. It's just her talking about how happy she is to be on yeah. the bicycle. And that's how you meet this character. And it's a great scene. There's a scene where there's two characters who are kind of in love, and they're they're kind of doing one of their swashbuckling missions on these airships, which, of course, I also... I mean, people jumping off of airships yeah, is I'm kind there of my for thing. That. Like, I like totally that. Totally agree. Um, and the gal, who is the daughter of one of the other characters, gets shot, and... Um, she's being tended to by her boyfriend, who is, like, the genius, who's discovered the... He's actually a, a Chinese man, because I guess there were some, like, Chinese workers in Central Africa at this time, um, sort of doing railroad stuff, basically. And he's actually a genius, and he's figured out the alternate power source that was already here. It doesn't matter. He's very, very smart. <laughs> We've been taught the whole book that he is brilliant, and he's going to solve everything, and he's why they have airships, right? Yeah. And he's tending to her, and he just can't save her. And it's this phenomenal scene as he just slowly realizes that it's not going to matter. And he's talking to her, and they're going through all the things they're going to do, and then she dies. And that's like it's it's given about oh, that geez. much bluntness. I guess that's a spoiler, but it's only about a third no, way through fine. the book. And it's just great. And I just wanted the whole book to be three times longer because then I think it would be just really a heck of a book. As it is, it's a pretty good book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'll definitely keep an eye on what she gets up to in the future. And I'm sure that she could not sell a 900-page alternate that's, history I mean, steampunk yeah, I call. Like, say, I, I don't really think that would have worked. So. Yeah, I know. That's what sucks <laughs> about it. Like, that's, why, that's why serial publications back in you know, Tolstoy's day were so great. Because you, you weren't selling a 1,200-page book, right? You were just selling a weekly installment. Yeah. Um, which, you know? I, I kind of wonder if there isn't a director's cut under on her desk somewhere that, I mean, I would like Bring to read. Bring it out. Least, Bring it out, Nisi. Um. Anyway, only other thing, I read The Great Gatsby this year, or actually I listened to the Jake Hall Great Gatsby audiobook, um, and I just want to say, I think we, maybe I even said this last year, but uh, our, our English English teacher, our senior year of high school, said had us read The Great Gatsby and said, you won't like this now, but you should read it when you turn 30 and you'll like it, and I was like, sure, whatever, <laughs> and then I read it when I turned 30, and you know, he's right, he's I right. liked it, I it's know. really good, it's, so it's absolutely wasted on the youth, it should not be, it should not be uh, taught in high school particularly it doesn't make any sense to 17 year olds um, i totally agree well, that's how that's how i feel about mrs dalloway too it's like hey, this is hey this is a book about the passage of time and stuff um you're 17 and don't know crap like, like <laughs> it, it actually matters that you have life experience before this book impacts you you have to have it <laughs> um i guess the only other thing i wanted this i talked about shirley jackson a bit because i didn't want to talk about shirley jackson for two hours oh. but the sundial is fantastic it's not as good as haunting of hill house and uh We've always lived in the castle, partly because, you know, most books are not as good as those. Near That's as true. Good. That's a good point. The, but the sundial is very good. It is incredibly funny in a way that she can be with these weird. Um, basically, there's a family living in a house, you know, big New England house. Um, there's been a death in the family. There's a lot of internal family squabbles. And then the weird, crazy old aunt has a vision that the world is going to end. And for whatever reason, everyone in the family believes her and starts barricading the house against the end of the world. Um, it's very, very funny, except maybe the world is actually going to end. Like it's never very clear. (laughs) Um, there's a scene where one of the girls tries to run away and gets like in a ride with a very scary cab driver that is legitimately just terrifying. Um, it's incredibly funny when it wants to be. And it's just really very, very, very good. And, I understand why it's overshadowed by the other two, and that's probably true, but it is uh it really deserves to be thought of as well. You know, it's and it's funny. I do I feel like it's hard it's always hard to like it's always hard to speak to trends based on like 
your own experience because I, 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 but it feels like to me that Shirley Jackson's reputation, it really did hang on the lottery, right? Like she was remembered for the lottery. Yeah, absolutely. Is what it feels like. Um, but it, it, except that in the last 10 years, uh, her novels have become everything, right? So, it, I, 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 which, which may not be true. Like maybe, you know, her, you know, her novels have always been popular to some extent. Um, and so maybe like I was just, you know, maybe I was just 18, 15 years ago is the problem, right? Like I didn't know enough about <laughs> the literary world to say whether she was still big as a novelist. But it does feel like, at least for me, that like the lottery is why everyone remembered her. And then now it feels like she's remembered as a novelist. And it feels like when you've talked about her, um, you, you've emphasized the same thing that like, I think you would rate her novels much higher than her short stories, correct? I, I mean, the short stories are good that I've read. I read the she only published one collection in her lifetime she published lots of stories right. but only one collection which is the one the lottery is yeah. in and like they're all they're all good short stories but they don't hold a candle to really most of the books yeah that's what it seems um, like even even the earlier ones uh, the lottery is a good short story right yeah. like it's a very good short story it's not as good as like the average random passage out of even the bird's nest which is probably my least favorite of her novels like no, I, I believe that because I, when I came, I, mean, I like you no, know, like you. I think we read it in the same class in high school. I read the lottery and I liked it, and then I read, I read actually, I, I read um, "We've Always Lived in the Castle" first. I read that and I was like, "What am I reading? <laughs> this is amazing!" And no one told me it would be like this. <laughs> um, least of all, her own her own writing did not predict that. If you've only read the lottery, it's good, but definitely pick up really any of her books, but particularly the last three. Um... Hangs a Man is wild, but I really liked it. Um, I, of course, I, I'm just, I, I have no choice now but to stand, as the children say. So, <laughs> yeah. So I know we're running out of time here, at least on your yeah. end. Is there any other books you really wanted to at least quickly reference? No, I mean, uh, nothing, nothing off the top of my head that I read myself. I mean, I still, I find it a great tragedy that we have now done two podcasts that basically included War and Peace, and I've not talked about War and Peace uh, masonry, <laughs> the Masons and Warren <laughs> Priest, I feel like this huge, you know, this huge subplot that I just wanted you to talk about for hours and we never got to it. So we'll have to make a whole podcast yeah, I really, just for that. The trouble is I really don't have that much to say about it because I, I, I don't really think that mid 19th century Russian masonry has very much in common with the late 20th, early well, 20th century that's what a Mason American masonry would I know say. a bit about. That's what a Mason would say to <laughs> me. Yeah, you're right. It's all, it's <laughs> oh, all we're all different, we're all, Joel. Yeah. It's all, we're just people, you know? Like, I, you know, I've heard that before, Bill. <laughs> I haven't been to a lodge meeting in probably 10 years. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that sounds right then. That sounds like the Masons in the, in the, in the book, actually. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I will say there's a bit in War and Peace when Tolstoy describes four different kinds of Masons who are in it for different reasons. And I had heard that reference before, like that Tolstoy was not a Mason. And so some of what he says is, I understand he researched the heck out of it. I have no idea to what extent it's really accurate right. to mid-19th century Russian Masonry. But I know people quote that for like those four different kinds of Masons thing all the time um, because he, he seems to have a pretty good grasp on that motivation people come to it for different reasons yeah. and some of them are better than others <laughs> yeah, that sounds right <laughs> cool man well thanks as always for doing this uh you know i think my goal for next year when we is first of all to do this <clears throat> within the current calendar year <laughs> um and then also like I, I do think it'd be fun if we had like a yeah i think it'd be fun if we had some you know some like trivia or some more quotes so i had i had my quote book and i just i left it at home it's not here you know I think if we started just pulling random passages, for one thing in particular, I would just start reading whole Shirley Jackson chapters at you. Oh, and for another thing, sure. like, this would be very long. Because, I mean, I, 
Joel and I and some other friends are in a, a Discord server, which is like a chat room. And when I was going through my Shirley Jackson pro- project, I want to say I must have put a hundred random Shirley Jackson quotes into the Discord <laughs> because I'm just madly in love. Um, I don't apologize at all. They no, were all worth it. Amazing. <laughs> I, I ate them up. She can do stuff in a sentence that just skewers, encapsulates, and expresses a small amount of sympathy for a relationship. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> like... <laughs> no, yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. No, she is. She is. She is definitely one of the one of the great writers that I feel like I discovered too late. But it's okay. There's still time. Oh, can I make one other joke, or do you have to go right now? No, go ahead. So I, I, one book I meant to read last year and didn't finish and will read this year is Stephen Graham Jones' book Mongrels, which is a sort of a werewolf book that was came out a few years ago. It's supposed to be phenomenal. Uh, I really enjoyed the first hundred pages, and then I got to an image so incredibly upsetting, I had to put the book down. <laughs> that hasn't happened to me in like 20 years. <laughs> oh my it's a very goodness. good image. It makes a lot of sense. It's not inappropriate. Like, it's not like it was gratuitous, and it was probably just the sort of thing that got under my skin specifically, because something does, in fact, get under someone's skin right. specifically. Uh, and I had to put the book down, so I'll probably read it at some point in 2020, but... I just want to give 10 points to Stephen Graham Jones for doing something <laughs> to me that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> that is. No, I, yeah, that's a great reason to put a book down, but also a very rare and surprising one. Um, I actually, <laughs> as far as putting books down real quick, and then I really, sh- I really should go. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I, so I really like Charles Portis, who wrote True Grit is what he's most famous for. I liked and read his book uh, Norwood, which is hysterical. Um, and I picked up what was supposed to be one of his other great books, which is Masters of Atlantis. And it's about basically, you know, the secret club of the, 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 these two guys start and they just kind of like con their way, although they actually believe it, you know, through the 20th century. Um, and it wasn't good. <laughs> I feel like I haven't. Oh, no. <laughs> I haven't had that experience. In, so I put it down. And I, and I haven't had that experience in so long where like an author I already like and a book that's already been recommended by the right people goes sour for me you know what i mean like that's pretty rare these days i feel like and it, it definitely it happened with that and it happened with maybe a few other ones which i was surprised by but that was definitely the worst of like oh i just wanted to like this book and you know what it's not very good um <laughs> i hate yeah, that feeling too. yeah so well man all right well you gotta yeah, go i gotta so. go <laughs> thanks as always for doing this though bill yeah i guess i should say we are gonna we know what our next book oh, is yeah. can i get that out real quick sorry yeah uh, our first big read of 2020, we're going to read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by, oh heck, by, we're going to read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. Sorry, that's her name. <laughs> I, I almost said Suzanne Palmer, Susan. but that's like, her name's the other Susan. person. Her name's Susan. And I looked it up and I was like, <laughs> it's not Susan. It's Susanna. Anyway, we're going to read Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell uh, in about March of this year. So look for that. And uh, we're really excited about it. We have some more ideas for the next few episodes, but haven't completely decided what we're going to do. So... Yeah, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and then more stuff after that. So uh, thanks again for doing this podcast, Joel. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I will let you go unless you have anything else nope, you really want to say. that sounds good, man. Thanks as always. And good luck out there with your reading, people. You know, it's a hard word, world for us. <laughs> yeah, I may end up reading about six books this year if my yeah, career job continues. It might, it might pace, be the books so we'll for see. the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How was your how was your 2020 in reading, Bill? Well, it was the podcast. That's what it was. Bye, everyone. Seriously. Um, anyway, talk to you later, All Joel. Right, Have a good night. You.